Well, good morning, church. As most of you probably know, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Revelation, and we're currently looking at these seven letters to the churches in Asia at the beginning of Revelation. And this week, we are actually looking at the letter to the church at Smyrna. And this is a very appropriate message for me because I actually grew up in Smyrna. It's uh, Smyrna, Georgia, a little bit different there. Uh, They do have the same name. Uh, When we were in second grade, we were taught this uh, silly little mnemonic trick on how to remember how to spell Smyrna. And it's silly men yawn right near airplanes. Never forget that, right? Uh, So I literally remember as a kid thinking about the spelling of this word and just thinking about how it was so interesting because there's just a mashup of um, consonants and awkwardly together. There's a Y as a vowel in the middle of the word, and then there's an A at the end of the word. And I was always thinking that it was just a weird word, but it was also kind of a nice-sounding word, and, uh, but just because of the variety and the mashup of different sounds that were in it. So that being said, it seems like it's kind of similar because the city of Smyrna itself was a, a mashup of different cultures and different um, people groups that were blended together. It was a very active seaport city that was in the Roman Empire. It was a leading trade hub, and it had a lot of different cultures that were together, the Romans, the Jews, of course the Christians, um, and the church in Smyrna here. Um, This church at Smyrna was experiencing a lot of persecution along with all these other seven churches in these letters. Now, as Trevor told us in his introductory sermon in Revelation 1, Part of the goal of Revelation and this apocalyptic symbols and imagery is to shock the audience into seeing true reality in a new light and to help them come awake to the truths of the gospel. So with that in mind, I believe that there are three realities that Jesus wants the church in Smyrna to see and that perhaps are relevant for us also today. And those three realities are, first, the reality of persecution— the reality of refinement, and the reality of the resurrection. Let me read our passage to us this morning. It's in Revelation chapter 2, looking at verses 8 through 11. It's only four verses, but a lot to pull out here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will bless the preaching of your word this morning, that you will um, help me as I preach. Uh, We pray that we can have our eyes opened to the realities of your gospel in our lives and forevermore to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So first here, looking at point one, the reality of persecution. Let me read verses eight and nine once more. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In the midst of the Roman Empire, the 
the Romans required everyone to say Caesar is Lord. And to say Jesus is Lord was obviously subversive to that. We see this play out in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Uh, It says, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So it was subversive. They saw that Jesus was trying to take the place of Caesar in their minds. Historically, we know that there's a lot of documented Christian persecution that took place during the time of Nero, that was in 54 to 69 AD. It's unclear how much persecution was actually coming from the Roman emperor's command during the time of Domitian, which is when Revelation was likely written. However, there's clearly there was a pattern of persecution that had begun in the lifetimes of many of the audience members. And in addition, as Trevor made mention in his sermon on Revelation 1, there was a growing movement in the Roman Empire to introduce this sort of emperor worship, which I guess was a type of um, Roman imperial cult. It's almost as if um, in Star Wars, if uh, Darth Vader was making the stormtroopers worship the emperor. Uh, So the Roman Empire alone was bringing a lot of persecution upon Christians, and the Smyrna church was most certainly experiencing a lot of this. And then there were the Jews, which is made mention of here. Uh, The Jews as a people group were already living in many places besides Israel uh, throughout the Roman Empire, and they had worked out a deal with the Romans to be exempt from the requirements to follow the emperor worship due to their own religion. However, the Jews obviously hated the Christians because they were a separate sect from off of the Jews, and they were actively working to persecute them. And one way that they would do this was by kind of ratting out the Christians as not being really Jewish and then turning them over to the Romans who would then persecute them for not, not being Jews and not, um, not following the emperor worship. So in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here in Revelation, John is recording the words of Jesus in his vision, and Jesus seems to reflect the same idea that Paul writes to the Romans, that these Jews are not real Jews because they've rejected Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is kind of an inverted true reality that Jesus is working to open the eyes of the church of Smyrna to see that the true followers of God are no longer those who just claim to follow Yahweh, but meanwhile they're persecuting people, but rather they're the ones who follow after Jesus. We see the same type of inversion again in this verse in verse 9, where Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that they're experiencing poverty, but they're actually rich. Again, Jesus is working to open up their eyes to reveal to them the truth of the nature of the kingdom of God, that richness in the kingdom comes even in poverty. Jesus says in Luke six twenty. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The reality in the gospel is that Jesus is our treasure and that all our hope for this life and the next can be found in him alone. The church at Smyrna was literally impoverished to where they were hungry and they were in dire need. As we'll soon see, they were being oppressed and persecuted even to death 
But despite this, Jesus assures them that they are truly rich in the kingdom of heaven. Now remember also that these letters are addressed to the lampstands and to their angels. So there's clearly a specific focus on local churches here in these letters. As we can see, we can see through this that the light of the world is not these super Christians who are off doing this by themselves, but it's the local church. Normal and sinfully imperfect humans who come together and choose to be in relationship so that they can be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think the metaphor of a lampstand is so apt because a lampstand is something that provides both heat and light. It draws people in who would want to be together, and it repels people away who wouldn't want to be seen because of the light. The local church, likewise, is something that attracts people, and it repels people on this side of Jesus' return. And I say this side of Jesus' return because throughout Revelation and in these letters, the whole book of Revelation really is showing two realities. It shows us, it's revealing the reality of this current state of the kingdom of God before Christ's return. And it's also revealing the reality and glimpses of that reality of what life looks like after Christ's return and for all eternity. On this side of Christ's return, local churches are one of the main ways that Jesus has chosen to build his kingdom through tangible communities of people in locations around the world who gather to worship God together. In the midst of his persecution, joining a church was much more than just joining some sort of optional club. It was a life change. They were forsaking their old way of life. They were forsaking their friends, their family. Oftentimes, they were taking on a very real risk of persecution and death. So what was the church of Smyrna thinking in the midst of this great persecution? Perhaps maybe the temptation could have been to soften what they were doing, right? Maybe to back off of the truth and cater to the Romans and the Jews who were persecuting to try to placate their anger, maybe to compromise on their beliefs. As we'll see later in some of these other letters, this is what was happening in some of the other churches. There was false teaching of the Nicolaitans that was in Pergamum. There were lukewarm deeds in Laodicea. This is the temptation in the midst of persecution, to give in, to cave, to lose hold of the truth of the gospel. Or perhaps another temptation might have been to just leave the city altogether, right? To pack up, to go to the suburbs, uh, further away from this busy seaport that allowed so much access to them easily. Maybe it was like some modern-day cults, this temptation to kind of wait, hunker together and uh, wait for the Lord's return. But what Jesus commands them in verse 10, as we'll see, is do not fear and be faithful. He wants them to stay in the city, to be a part of the city, but to be totally different from the city. He wants them to be a lampstand in the midst of the city of Smyrna. He wants them to be in the world, but not of the world. The church of Smyrna was to stay and endure the persecution from Jews and Romans and other voices in the culture, because that's precisely what the kingdom of God is about. Jesus promised us that we would indeed experience persecution if we follow him. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And again, in Matthew 5, 10, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
the richness that was offered to the church at Smyrna is offered to us today as believers here at the Gathering Church in Portland, Oregon. We can find our riches and our treasure in Jesus in his death and resurrection that has allowed us to be justified before God. If we're putting all of our hopes and trust in him, we are, in actual real reality, rich beyond all wonder. This is the revelation that Jesus is giving to the church at Smyrna here. So by way of application, just some questions for us. What is your temptation under pressure? How do you respond externally to the world around you in the midst of it? Do you try to fight or flight? If you're prone toward flight, perhaps you're willing to cave to those around you. Maybe you're the one who's giving in, submitting to culture, to the crowd. Or perhaps if you're drawn toward fight, maybe you want to fight by quarantining yourself. And I'm not talking about COVID-19 quarantine. I'm talking about creating social and cultural isolation that forms a bubble of friends or Christian perspectives and just walls you off from the reality of the rest of Portland. Jesus calls us as a church to be a lampstand, and that means we must be present, active, and available to others while we're also standing absolutely resolute in the truth and in love with Jesus. We can't fight or flight if we're to endure. We have to stay in the conversation. We also must work together as one body in the unity of mission and spirit. Together, we evangelize. Together, we bear one another's burdens. Together, we're able to endure persecution. It's only together as the local church in the lampstand that we can truly realize how rich we truly are in Christ. The point number two, the reality of refinement. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So this command of do not fear, it's the most repeated command throughout all of scripture. And God tells us this for really good reasons. In our sin and our self-reliance, we are fearful people. We often respond out of fear in ways that we aren't even consciously aware. Jesus is seeking here to open the eyes of the church of Smyrna to the reality that their souls are secure in Christ, both now and forevermore. It's exactly what we were singing just a few minutes ago, that Christ is the sure and steady anchor. And as we face the wave of death, we can hope in him because we are secure. We read then, as we look at this, that they're about to be tested. It says that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And Jesus mentions here 10 days of tribulation. Now, as in other places in Revelation, as a piece of apocalyptic literature, we have to remember that numbers and symbols have some various meanings, and they're often representative. So most commentators seem to take this maybe not as a literal 10 days, but perhaps a rounded number that indicates a short period of time. And some other commentators think that maybe it's a prolonged period, but it signifies that it will have a definitive end. Either way, the point is that a period of time is coming for the church in Smyrna when they will be greatly tested. This brings to mind for me uh, the story of Job. Um, it says that Satan is about to throw them into prison, right? Uh, well, in Job, God allows Satan to test Job. And we don't know the exact reasons for God allowing this test, but after God comes down in the whirlwind at the end of Job, um, in Job 42.5, we see Job's great confession. 
He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Despite Job's earlier insistence throughout this book in his own righteousness, here, after experiencing God and experiencing these trials, he learns even deeper levels of humility and repentance. He was refined. So God's been at work throughout all of redemptive history, working in this type of way. He uses trials and hardships to refine and test his people for specific periods of time. Abraham, for example, was tested in sacrificing his son Isaac. Jacob was tested through his trial of working 14 years for his uncle Laban and in dealing with his brother Esau. Joseph was tested, obviously, for many years in Egypt as a slave and in prison. Paul was given the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, which he actually calls a messenger of Satan sent to harass him to keep him from being conceited. And perhaps most poignantly, even our Savior, Jesus Christ, set an example for us in that he was tested by Satan himself in the wilderness before he launched into his three-year ministry. Here's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is able to use even the evil things of this world, even the works of Satan, to refine us and to make us more like him. He is able to work literally all things for our good and for his glory. Just as in the church of Smyrna's case and in our case, sanctification through refining our character is one of the primary ways that God is at work within us to shape us into Christians, which means little Christs, right? I would venture to say that outside of his Holy Spirit, major character transformation is nearly non-existent in this world. There may be some common grace that allows little increments of this for unbelievers, but I would say it's God's hand that is able to soften our hearts and to make our hearts into hearts of flesh. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, tells us that we're saved, we're justified, we're made clean before God because Christ has taken our punishment. He shed his blood to atone for our sins. But God continues to work in our lives after that to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of Christ. And that's where these trials come in. Trials and pressure are refining. They often cause what's truly going on inside of us to emotionally and spiritually bubble up. It reveals more of what's truly inside. Like a refiner's fire, God uses these trials to change the conditions and to make us more malleable. Without these trials, we can't see ourselves or see each other really as clearly. And so God often uses challenging circumstances to reveal something new to us about ourselves or perhaps about others. Now, certainly I don't want to miss or diminish what the church in Smyrna was experiencing. They were facing a lot more than just challenging circumstances. They were facing death. And Jesus doesn't promise here that they'll be saved from the trial or that their days on this earth will be extended. Instead, he promises them a crown of life to be faithful unto death. The refining of their souls through this ultimate trial results in eternal life with Jesus. In the midst of trials, we can never see the full picture of what God is making, but he can. Our God is all-powerful. He exists outside and above space and time. 
He's like a master painter, and we can only experience one small portion of the canvas that he's creating for our lives as a church, as individuals, and for this entire universe. And we see this in verse 8, as Jesus is depicted as the first and last. He knows all things, he sees all, and he's working for his glory and for our good. He loves us, and he calls us to love him and obey him in faith, even in trials and hardships, even in the extreme of death. What he's working is good, even if we can't see it in this moment or even on this side of his return. In our own flesh, what's going to come out under pressure and trials every time is sin. It's greed, gossip, lust, envy. We'll fail every time. It's only when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we submit control of ourselves as individuals and a group, that we can follow him. When we yield our wills, when we humble ourselves, when we trust him, we can allow Jesus to do what he's doing as he walks among the lampstands and he's sanctifying his church. So another application to press this into us, what is your internal emotional reaction in the midst of trials? Do you consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds? Instead of insisting on deliverance according to our terms, what would it look like to ask God what he's doing and how he is at work to conform us into the image of Christ? What would it look like to ask him to refine our character, to maybe even welcome hardships that will build this in us? What would it look like to hold this life, our health, our wealth, our time, open to him, to be faithful in all things, even unto death? And just as another reminder in the midst of this application, this letter is addressed to a lampstand. It's addressed to a local church. Jesus has built us as a church because we need each other. We need help to sharpen, for iron to sharpen iron, just like Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says. We need help to bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6, 2 says. The Holy Spirit often uses the church body to refine the church body. Finally, point number three the reality of the resurrection. Let's look at verse 11 once more. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As Jesus wraps up this letter to the church at Smyrna, he's already told them about their situation. He's already commanded them not to fear and to be faithful even unto death. And now he comes to the ultimate reason why the church at Smyrna can live in such a confident way in the midst of all these persecutions and testing. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Just as Jesus tells us in the Gospels, and this book of Revelation will go on to detail at the end, there is a judgment coming for all mankind. A judgment for those who hate God and who rebelled against him. And this judgment is a judgment after death. And apart from Jesus standing in our place, all of us deserve eternal damnation and separation from God. But in Christ, we're saved from this. In Christ, we're made holy. We're saved from our sin, not because of anything that we have done, but simply through faith in him and his sacrifice to die in our place on the cross. This present world is passing away, but our souls will live on eternally. You are an eternal creature. The church of Smyrna can stand secure because they know the second death of eternal separation from God cannot hurt them in Christ Jesus. 
Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Love this verse. It says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, who is your li- when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But through Jesus, we're offered eternal life in him in the midst of the death of our physical bodies. Again, Jesus is working here in Revelation to open the eyes of the church, to show them reality in the midst of persecution, and to give them hope. And this hope is not just for the future, but it's also for the here and now. Jesus wants the church at Smyrna to find joy in the here and now, despite the challenging circumstances and in the potential face of death. He wants them to have life to the fullest because they are secure eternally in him. So one quick application on this, if the church at Smyrna could experience this hope and joy and life to the fullest in the face of death, how much more should we be radically joyful in the Lord for what he has given us in this life and in the life to come? I know for myself, I can be so fickle and allow my joy and my mood to be shaped by the circumstances around me. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we cannot be hurt by the second death. Our eternal status with the God of the universe is secure because of Christ's work on our behalf. We should be fearless, faithful, and confident in this life and in death because of this reality. And I pray today that God will open our eyes, that he'll give us a revelation of this massive, true implication for every aspect of our lives. The church at Smyrna is called to be faithful unto death. Throughout the New Testament, there are calls to endure, right? to run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Jesus does expect them to endure to the end, even unto death. And I think this refinement is a part of separating the sheep from the goats. Ultimately, it's the Lord who knows our hearts, and he knows the salvation status of every individual. And salvation is entirely of him. But I think there is a caution here that endurance is expected until the end. This may feel like a burden, but if Christ is our treasure and our hope, this endurance will be a delight, and in it, we will experience true freedom. And finally, as we wrap up, I want us to look back at verse 8 one more time. How does Jesus introduce himself in this letter? Well, he says the words of the first and last, as I mentioned earlier. He's before all. He's outside of time. But then he says he is the one who died and came to life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus can ask his followers to be faithful unto death because he already has been himself. When he says, I know your tribulation in verse 9, Jesus doesn't simply see their plight and have awareness and some kind of vague empathy. He knows. He knows because he's been there. He sympathizes with us because he was betrayed by his disciple. He was abandoned by his friends. He was ridiculed and mocked and falsely accused, and he was nailed to a cross where he literally bore the weight of our sins and the wrath of God against all of mankind, and he suffered, and he died. He's not some sort of tyrannical master who demands us to submit. He's a humble savior, and he's been through all hell already on our behalf. When he asks us to endure and to be faithful, our suffering so pale in comparison to what he has already endured on our behalf. And it's because of his sacrifice and his resurrection that we can turn to him and have this hope that we can endure these light and momentary afflictions because we know that there is a weight of glory coming. If you're listening today and you've never put your faith, 
in Jesus Christ, if you've never turned to him to confess and repent of your sins and chosen to follow him for all your hope in this life and the next, I urge you to consider this call today. The second death is real. God is perfectly holy and he cannot bear sin and he will punish all sin at the end of time. Put your faith in Christ. It's only through faith in him that we can endure, that we can experience this crown of life. The only way these believers in Smyrna were able to endure is through this power in the Holy Spirit. They had faith that stood up to death because of the unchanging nature of their hope. And you can have that very hope today in Christ Jesus. Believers, today I would encourage us in the same way that Jesus encouraged the church at Smyrna, do not fear. The reality that Jesus wants his church to see is that we are secure. We're secure in Christ in all things. So focus on living faithfully for him. Focus on enduring in this present world, allowing yourself to be conformed into his image with joy and enduring any trials that may come. We can live with joy in the kingdom that he has set up here and now, and we can live in hope and anticipation of an even greater consummation of all things that is to come on the other side of his return. Let's pray.